Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode eight. Docker is a common tool for Python developers, creating and deploying applications. But what do you need to know if you want to use Docker for data science and machine learning? What are the best practices if you want to start using containers for your scientific projects? This week, my guest is Tanya Allard. She's a senior developer advocate at Microsoft and focuses on machine learning, scientific computing, research, and open source. Tanya's created a talk for PyCon US 2020, which is now online. The talk's titled Docker and Python, making them play nicely and securely for data science and machine learning. The talk draws on her expertise in the improvements of processes, reproducibility, and transparency in research and data science. We discuss a variety of tools for making your containers more secure and your results reproducible. Tanya is passionate about mentoring, open source, and its community. She's an organizer for Mentored Sprints for Diverse Beginners. And she talks about the upcoming online sprints for PyCon US 2020. We also discuss her plans to start a podcast. So let's get started. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. Interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Welcome, Tanya. Hi. Thank you for having me. Why don't you tell me a little bit about what you're currently up to at Microsoft? Well, at the moment, I'm a senior developer advocate at Microsoft. And because of, well, my background and the topics I specialize, I mainly work with data science community, machine learning community, scientific computing folks. So that covers researchers, academics, research software engineers, and all the open source ecosystem. So basically, I try to help developers or, or researchers to do their work better and that can be developing better tools, working with our engineering teams to improve the tools that we have, creating content or collaborating in open source projects. Cool. I've kind of met in passing on Twitter and stuff, several other people that are developer advocates. And it sounds like there's lots of different types of roles inside of there, different areas that you focus on. You know, somebody like, I'm hoping to talk to Cecil Phillip would have like a different focus, but yours is mostly in helping uh, the data science community. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think there are a lot of different flavors of developer advocates. And I think one of the reasons is because developers are everywhere. There are lots of different kind of ways in which people can use programming languages to do stuff. And also within developer relations, there are folks focusing on, on different sides of, of the developer relations or developer advocacy as well. Yeah, cool. What would be a typical... I don't know, interaction you'd have with a, a developer, what would that look like? Well, that varies a lot. Sometimes folks will come to me over, say, hey, I'm trying to use, I don't know, GitHub Actions to deploy web app in Azure, and I'm facing these problems, or do you have any pointers? And I sometimes give them pointers or, or develop demos or take this back to our engineering teams to say, hey, a lot of folks are experiencing these issues or are struggling with our products. Let's go and, 
and see how we can use those problems. Sometimes it is just because I love certain open source projects or I use certain open source projects a lot. So we interact a lot through GitHub, or whether it's me creating pull requests or uh, me providing some sort of support or interacting with them at, at workshops or conferences or just online, like through Slack channels, Discord. Yeah, cool. One of the reasons I wanted to bring you on was I noticed on the PyCon list of talks before everything kind of shifted to online that you were doing this talk about Docker and Python using Docker for machine learning and data science. And so I wanted to just get an idea if you can tell me what your talk's about. Yeah, definitely. So as someone that works with machine learning and all things data science and scientific computing, I came to a point where I needed to use Docker to have more predictable environments, be able to collaborate with other folks within my organization or with folks in my community. And it turns out that there are not that many, or at the time there were not that many resources out there uh, teaching you about best practices, how to create secure, robust, and lightweight Docker images, um, and also because of some dependencies in in the packages that we use, for example, in Python or R, uh, sometimes it can be very, very hard to get things working together. So basically, this talk is about the different learnings that I've accumulated over a couple of years and also some tips and tricks on how people can start uh, having a more robust machine learning workflow with Docker just to get them to play nicely because I know sometimes that can be a headache. I've been there. Okay, yeah. Um, so I just really want to help others. Nice. So I don't know if we should maybe give a little background on what Docker is and how it maybe differs from other solutions people might have. Yeah, so basically when you create a Docker, well, uh, you, you need to create a Docker image for everything. So you're completely isolating your developing environment. Okay. So instead of developing on your local computer, let's say that you do pip install pandas, you're installing it in a separate kernel or a separate environment that is completely isolated from all of the other dependencies or your runtime environment. Yeah. So basically, each container is a standard unit of software packages. So you can have different packages altogether with all your dependencies, with all the files that you need for your application, for example, or your app containing model to run. And because you can pin all of these dependencies and, and have specific commands and have specific ports, it makes it much more reproducible because other folks can use the same container in their environment without them having to then fiddle with their environment to get this, well, with their local computer to have the same dependencies that you have or the same setup. I think a lot of folks uh, often get a bit confused between containers and virtual machines. Yeah, definitely. In the sense that both allow you to have isolated resources, meaning that you're not directly using your default environment or runtime environment in your computer, but the main difference is that containers virtualize the operating system, whereas virtual machines are virtualizing the actual hardware. So that means that containers are much more portable. And that loops back to what I was saying before, that it's super easy to share with others uh, so that they can use the same reproducible environment. Yeah, I think that's the confusion a lot of people have is if you were to go to something like GitHub and download a repository and in some cases you're saying, okay, here's my Anaconda 
setup or maybe just your standard Mac or Windows or Linux setup, and you run the requirements text and it pip installs or conda installs all of these dependencies into your main system, there's all kinds of potential conflicts and there's that famous XKCD Python super fun site. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that cartoon where it's just basically this person has so many different installations of Python and so many different places things are going on that you aren't sure what's happening. And so with virtual machines, you were like setting up a whole, like you said, it's trying to reproduce like all the hardware, you know, the RAM and the operating system and all these extra resources. And then the containers are kind of a subset of that in some ways, right? You're mainly able to just kind of focus on like a programming language, a light version of Linux or something like that, and then get all those dependencies and just set up like everything it needs for a particular project. Am I explaining that right? Does that make sense? Yeah, that, that's correct. Yeah, that's correct. Because in that sense, containers are running as an is- a complete isolated process okay. within your user space. Whereas the virtual machine, it's it not only contains the dependencies, but also it contains a full copy of an operating system. So if you have a Linux virtual machine, it actually has all of a Linux uh, operating system, whether it's uh, Debian, Ubuntu, uh, Red Hat, CentOS, whatever flavor you're using. And in the same sense, if you have a Windows virtual machine, for example, it's a full Windows operating system. Yeah, which is a lot of overhead. You know, it has to like know how to talk to all your hardware, you know, your keyboard, mouse, and all that kind of stuff. And that's nice that a Docker container maybe doesn't have to worry about that. It can be sort of abstracted from that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, cool. And also, well, also one of the advantages is, uh, for example, if you're running virtual machines on the cloud, uh, that's something I do a lot. I run a lot of virtual machines on Azure because sometimes I need extra compute for machine learning, training, and, and some beefy processes, then I can still containerize my apps and run them on top of the virtual machine. In that sense, again, all my environments and dependencies are completely isolated. Nice. So that kind of leads to one of the things that is like a note in your like headline for your talk is the idea of reproducibility. That's correct. Yeah. I, I focus a lot on, on reproducibility. I come from a research background. Right. And we have a big problem in terms of reproducibility and research. And I think, especially when dealing with machine learning, it is essential that we can actually confirm or verify that if someone is, for example, writing paper or publishing the newest research in machine learning, that we can actually verify that these folks did what they said they did. And in that sense, that's where reproducibility matters because then others can build faster on those algorithms or in that research or even on on an app that they're deploying somewhere else. Yeah. And it also in- increases level of trustworthiness that people can have when you're using somebody else's work. How accepted is it in data science and machine learning space to use Docker as a tool? I think it's becoming... Uh, more and more evident and we do need to have robust processes to have reproducible or deterministic environments. Because in so many cases, people believe that if you make your code public or open source, then that makes your research or your machine learning thing reproducible. And that's not the case because you still have to be able to reproduce the environment or 
the environment and also the data set that was used for you to get the same results. Um, because you can have many, many, many variations between certain dependencies. If you're using a version of Pandas versus another or Matplotlib, or even different uh, distributions of operating systems can change significantly your results. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess that kind of leads into the talk somewhat. And what are the challenges in taking a tool like Docker? As you had said in the, again, part of your talk, you were mentioning that Docker is usually used for a lot of these other application kind of situations, like setting up a Django website or or some other kind of uh, framework like that. What are the challenges with using it for machine learning? Yeah, so I think it's the use of Docker containers or containers in general has been more common in more traditional software engineering practices. Whereas in machine learning, we sometimes have we need beefier machines as well, but we also have a lot of um, libraries that depend on Fortran libraries that are being compiled of the sort. Um, we also need complex dependencies. Was that Fortran? Is that what you said? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So okay. this is something that uh, probably surprises a lot of folks. A lot of, if we're going back to the, our programming language, a very big amount of the libraries that we use for data manipulation and machine learning are running on Fortran because wow. Fortran is, is, is fast and it's amazing. That's cool. But also because with these all libraries that we're using, whether we're just using R or Python, sometimes it can be very, very complex to get things working on properly together. Yeah. And it's because of the upstreams and, down and downstream dependencies. So we already have that problem within the Python ecosystem. And then that becomes a bit more complex also when we translate that into the data science sphere in Python, because we are all also using different paradigms. We need to use different libraries. Uh, we treat data in different way. And that also allows us, well, allow folks to open certain vulnerabilities or, or doors for vulnerabilities within their Docker containers. And also a big, big problem is that a lot of the folks that come and work in machine learning or data science are not software engineers. Yeah. So they're, I don't know, statisticians, mathematicians, or folks that transition from another career or don't have a solid software engineering practices background. So then when you try and understand how Docker works and how containers work and uh, Docker Compose to have more complex systems, then it's very, very easy to miss some things that for others would be a bit more evident. And as I said, there are not many resources focusing on how you can actually make your container more secure for data science or optimize it, or what are actually the advantages of installing certain dependencies uh, using, I don't know, Conda, Miniconda, Poetry, Pipem for your machine learning applications. Yeah. So what are some of the suggestions that you have that you, you cover in your talk? So some of the suggestions that I make are... Very simple sanity checks, like making sure that not only you're pinning your dependencies within your conda environment file, for example, or if you're using poetry, but also making sure that you're always pinning the version of your container. Because there are a lot of Docker containers out there that they just use Python, whatever, Alpine latest. 
and that can change. Or if you're building on somebody else's Docker image, that version can change very, very easily. So being more careful about that, adding appropriate metadata to your root containers also goes a very, very long way. And also making the most of multi-stages build because that can significantly change the size of, and the performance of your of your container. I'm actually giving some advice on how you can use this multi-stage image building to have R&D uh, staging and development environments that are kind of similar or built on, on top of the same base, but just have fine-tuned characteristics for wherever they're going to be running. So let me take you back a, a step. You mentioned metadata for the Docker image. What's included there and how is that helpful? So there is some basic metadata that you can use. For example, who is the maintainer of uh, or who's working with that image and how the person can be contacted and also on any other dependencies that you might need. Okay. Let's say that you have to to build on, if you're using multi-stage builds, again, uh, if there are any considerations on on the base image that you're using. There are a lot of labels actually in Docker that are very, very helpful when dealing with this. And also because folks are, um, especially as I mentioned before, a lot of folks are not, let's say experts in Docker. I don't think I am an expert in Docker, but also another big, big tip is trying to automate as much as possible. Sure. Because it's easier to automate stuff than doing everything by hand and spending probably three days, four hours, whatever, trying to get your Docker image right when there are other tools or other good alternatives for you to automate this process or using some other base image that folks have already been developing like part of the Jupyter stack. Okay. And so when you talk about the, the multi-stages, are you creating initial images and then testing how it, it works and then moving forward? What does that look like? So I have, let me think about an example. Sure. You can start for, from a base. Let's say that I want to develop all of my data science applications using Python 3.7. Okay. So I use that as the, the base to create my base image that, that would be my R&D, for example. So then I can install certain requirements, whether it's using pip3requirements.txt or pipenv or whatever flavor you use. Okay. But you first, let's say that if I'm using Conda, I need to install Conda and then create my environment, install my dependencies. So then that is always going to be the base because that is something that I'm going to be using regardless of if I'm doing it in the development stage or in my production stage or in staging environment. So I can use that. So as you create that initial stage, is there an advantage to making it somewhat generic so that you can reuse that? Right. Yes. So you're making it as reusable as possible. And then using that one, similar how you would do it when you do from Python 3.7.0, then you can do something similar just like from Tanya base, for example. I can call that base as Tanya base or R&D base, whatever. And then install specific dependencies for that workflow. Okay mount specific volumes if I need to op um, specify ports, and then I can use that for R&D. When I make sure 
after my model is working properly or my app is working properly, then I can build another image based again on the tiny based. Okay. But probably then I, I need to, if that's what is going to go into production, I am going to need to add additional layers of security to make sure that only certain ports are accessible, that there is no, there is no chances of folks being a super user. Oh, okay. But that they're actually an unprivileged user so that nobody can actually access my container and do malicious stuff and probably enable some logging capabilities of the applications that I'm generating. So they all part from that base that I generated, but then I'm leveraging the use or, or the advantages of multi-stage buildings because I don't need to build everything from scratch every time. I have something that is reusable. Sure. And that also makes my images much thinner because that means that I'm not going to have all the like all of the extra dependencies, a lot of redundant pieces of software that I don't need in, for example, my production environment. Yeah, and you kind of battle tested it some too, in the sense that you've gone through and you already preset some of the security things that you have come across, and now you can kind of I don't know bake that in or or at least have that as the part of the recipe so that you're not having to you know rewrite it every single time. I can see that as really, really useful. Yeah, it makes it so much easier to pick up and also throw away. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so it also makes your workflow much more efficient as well. Cool. I have a question on data in this situation. You mentioned kind of opening ports or potentially spinning up additional containers or apps. Is that where you would put the data sets and stuff that you're working on? Would that be in a, like an actual database or would it be flat or how does that usually work? Well, especially when we are working with big data sets, I would never bake my data in Docker image because that's going to make it very, very big. Yeah. So I normally have everything out on a special or dedicated database and I just make sure that I can communicate through that. Now, also, you have to be very, very careful because probably you're going to need passwords and usernames to be able to access this database or any other services that you need to integrate with your app. So you can also set environment variables that are set at build of your Docker image. Okay. Or that you can set up when you're running. But you have to be very careful because... If you use them at build stage, they're still inside the container. So folks could potentially get access to that. So it will then depend how you're deploying your containerized solution, whether it's using web apps or Kubernetes, then the most secure way to do that is having those environment variables in a separate place that will actually make it more secure. So you, you brought up Kubernetes there, and I've only dabbled in that. <laughs> I have a book sitting on my shelf I need to dive into and try to learn a little more about it. I've, you know, again, just dabbled in mainly making apps with Docker. So can you mention a little bit about Kubernetes? Yeah. So Kubernetes is an orchestrator for altered containers. And it's a very nifty tool, meaning that you can, let's say you have your container that, that has your a fantastic classification app that tells you whether you're looking at a dog or a cat. <laughs> sure. And imagine, I don't know, that probably becomes viral because you were featured on real Python or something somewhere else, and then folks want to go and try your app. There you go. <laughs> because if you have that container deployed in Kubernetes and all of a sudden you have 5,000 people trying to access it at a time, 
Kubernetes will autoscale and start more pods or more instances on your, of your containers so that folks can access that app. Then when your app becomes less popular and then you're just having, for example, two users a day or so, then it is also flexible. So then again, that shrinks to cover the demand. Nice. But again, it that orchestrator is, is very nifty in the sense that you can have your environment variables set up. You can also monitor the performance of your app. You can see if you have different containers, let's say that one of your container is taking care of the app itself, then another one is doing ETL or extract, transform and load processes for your pipeline, then you can integrate them together through Kubernetes. Cool. And again, you can have different kind of, of deployments and it can get very, very complex. Oh, yeah. It's, I mean, that's a whole career path, <laughs> right? Is uh, infrastructure and Kubernetes and stuff. Yeah. I kind of interrupted you on your multiple stages. Like, What do the continuing stages look like? So then probably at the end, you want to make sure that you're actually testing your application inside your container. So once it's passed from R&D, you probably have a staging environment. Okay. Well, your staging environment and your staging corresponding container that has the environment variables that you need, or for example, your connection to a different database or that has optimized logging and monitoring for you to be able to trace back errors as fast as possible. And then the one that actually goes into production is going to be a, a more robust one in the sense that, again, you don't want any vulnerabilities. You want uh, both your app and your container to be optimized for, for production environments where folks are actually going to access your, your service or whatever it is that you're developing. Yeah. Are there tools that you use specifically to test the security? Uh, yeah. So I actually discovered this tool called Sync, and it integrates with GitHub. I use GitHub a lot, but it also integrates with GitLab and Bitbucket, I believe. Okay. But it's a very nifty tool that allows you to assess vulnerabilities within whatever you're developing. It has a special de or a dedicated section for containers. Okay, nice. And it actually allows you to, to test, make sure that there are no evident security flaws within your containers. And that allows you to, to test that because it's integrated with GitHub. Let's say that you're pushing code there, then you have your continuous integration or continuous delivery pipeline that will build your image and tug. Then you can integrate sync to analyze for this kind of security flaws. And only if that passes, then you're actually pushing or, or publishing your your image. How's that spelled? Is it Zinc, like Z or? A... Oh, it's S-N-I, no, S-N-Y-K. Okay. All right. Or Snick. I don't know. I don't know. Sneaker. Yeah, something. <laughs> yeah, it's funky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it has a, a Doberman under logo. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, that's security there. <laughs> <laughs> Are there other unique challenges with using Docker containers for machine learning? I think it's similar to, well, some of the problems that you can have locally, like, <clears throat> sorry, memory leaks or problems when you're manipulating big data sets easily carry into your Docker containers. Okay. 
But because they're isolated environments, sometimes identifying the root cause is a bit harder. So again, one of the main uh, considerations that you will need to have when working on data science and machine learning is how you're actually dealing with your data. And I think you mentioned just before, if I would put my data or my data sets inside of a container, sometimes for small data sets, when you're doing R&D, it's okay to, to mount your local volume and it makes it very easy because you don't have to worry about setting a database for a small data set or, or for something. Yeah. But in general, I would advise to have your data sets somewhere else other than your container. And that also is for reproducibility because you also need to know the canonical origin of your data at all times. You need to know where your data is coming from, what you're doing with it, and where you're sending it uh, after you're done processing it or something. So you always need to understand your data lineage. Okay. And by having that baked into your container, it's so, so much harder because you not only need to create a new, a new tag or a new release of it, of, of your image every time you update your dependencies or your app, but also when you update your data set or your data. So what types of databases are good for this? Like what type of, uh, I don't know, I can think of like everything from, you know, MySQL to Postgres and, and those kinds of tools. I'm wondering if there are uh, better choices for doing things for data science? Um, so I normally use SQL databases or, or Postgres. So it's the, the same databases that you would normally use. Okay. It is just, and, and you can also have, for example, if you're using Postgres or MySQL and then you're using your machine learning stack, you can use Docker Compose to spin up a Docker container with Postgres, for example, and then spin up your Docker container that has all of your, your machine learning dependencies like TensorFlow, JupyterHub, Pandas, Matplotlib, uh, all of that. Nice. When you are doing the research and development, are you very often doing that on a local machine or are you doing a lot of that in sort of cloud environments when you're initially sort of just testing things out and trying to do like basic training? So I do a lot of, let's say, exploratory data analysis on my local machine. Sure. Probably on a subset of the data to get a feel on how the data looks like, get some early insights and get some ideas on how I could actually manipulate the data and start doing some very early development on on my model or, or what I want to do. But then the actual training, uh, if it's something beefy, I, I always do it on, on the cloud. Okay. Because that means that I don't have to be waiting for my computer to to finish off doing what it's doing. And I, I just can distribute that load to the cloud. I get much more power. It's more efficient. And then depending on that, sometimes I just get back some stuff and do again a bit more of development. If I need to do some refinement on my model, then I would probably do another runs uh, and compare against the baseline and the such. So it's a combination of both local and cloud computing, what I do normally. Cool. I guess maybe to make things slightly more tangible, can you give an example of a, a recent machine learning project that you've worked on? Yeah, sure. So, well, now that we've been, everybody's been talking about COVID-19. Sure, yeah. That's all in our minds. There is there are some open data sets about COVID, and one of these is actually available through Kaggle, I believe, which is one with all the papers 
And then I was trying to do some NLP analysis on those papers and also trying to do some basic research for another side project that I'm working on. So I made sure that I created a small pipeline to get the data process it, pre-process it. Then I created my models and I ran all of that on the cloud to do all the training. And something else that I really, really like doing is using Jupyter Notebooks with Papermill to do parameterized runs of stuff. So that way that allows me to test a lot of different parameters um, and then capture the output in different Jupyter Notebooks that, that I can then access for revision later on. So you mentioned three different tools there. I want to dive in a little bit deeper into. I'll start with the last one, Papermill. What it's outputting is different actual notebooks with different sets of parameters. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So I, let's say I have a base notebook that has the main analysis or yeah, the, the main analysis that I want to carry on. And I purposely leave some cells that are able to be parameterized. And there, those can be anything. You can probably change the metrics that you are looking at, or you can change um, if you're trying to do some uh, hyperparameter tuning and the such. I, I then run that and populate those parameters with the different runs that I'm doing. And each output is going to be a new different notebook. Nice. And then I can just go and check all of uh, how the analysis change or how the results changed with this parameterized input. Cool. And then you use the acronym for NLP, is that right? Yes. So what does that stand for? So it's natural language language processing. And I was actually using Spacey because Spacey is probably one of my favorite tools to use in that area. Cool. And the Spacey team is amazing and they've made it so easy to, to work with. So you were saying that's going to look at documentation, is that right? Or other papers and things? Research papers. So it's looking at different research papers from COVID-19. Okay. Just to find some different insights and how other folks are how other folks are getting to different conclusions or different results through through the research and the research methods. Cool. And then at the very beginning, I, I think you said Kaggle, is that right? Where you were getting the initial data site from? Yeah. So okay. the community at Kaggle has a lot of data sets, and especially now with COVID nineteen, they have this data set for the paper is, I think it comes from John, John Hopkins. I'm going to double check. Yeah, that's a pretty big site right now for information on that. Yeah, it, it's, the, it's the best. Yeah. So it's an open research data set. Nice. Yeah, so that's kind of a neat area that if somebody wanted to explore some active data sets uh, and things that are going on in the real world and kind of compare what they're doing with stuff that's out there. This is a very interesting time to be able to try that stuff out. What are some of the other best practices you have for data-intensive applications? So I have actually, another, I'm going to recommend another tool that I like um, that's very helpful for data-intensive applications, but it's in general for anyone creating Docker files or um, any other descriptive files for workflow, and it's called Dattree. So that's spelled D-A-T-R-E-E. And it allows you to enforce your development best practices, coding standards, and also security policies. So let's say that different folks of my team are working 
uh, on the same COVID challenge, let's say, and we are all modifying the Docker image. So then you can enforce different rules so that your merge uh, is not approved unless all of these rules are met. And that can go from making sure that all your dependencies are into a specific version and that includes the Docker image. Make sure that you are not using certain repositories because those are known to be, I don't know, vulnerable. So try to use the stable release of something else. And that again integrates uh, with GitHub. So then you can have your main workflow, your continuous integration, test and delivery. And then also uh, you have your security check with SNCC, SYNC, however that's pronounced, yeah. <laughs> enforcement of your best practices with that tree. And that actually makes a very, very robust workflow and increases your confidence in what you're doing. Cool. Now, when it comes to data intensive applications, something I, I talk a lot about data, but also something that we have to be very careful about is data jungles. And I'm going to explain what a data jungle is, because when we're working with data uh, in machine learning or data science or scientific computing, sometimes we need to aggregate data from different sources. Sometimes we're using different databases, we're scraping websites, or we're using different APIs to put them together. Then we do a lot of transformations, we do exploratory analysis, then we do more transformations. So. In that loop, we are creating a lot of intermediate data sets that can be one derived from the other or some other is can be parallel. You can imagine that it's very, very easy for all of these things to become entangled if you are not very careful with your data lineage. Yeah. You talked about the transforming, right? Exactly. And that's why the term of data jungle. And this is very, very problematic because if you don't know, if you don't keep track of those intermediate data sources and dispose of those that you don't need, there's going to be a trace somewhere, whether it's stored in your desk or in somewhere of your models or somewhere in your scripts. And that can also lead to, to memory leaks, but also can lead to very costly uh, problems upstream when you're deploying applications to wherever you're deploying them. It'd be hard to find out what happened, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So sometimes not only you have to always keep track of your dependencies and your environment and the version of your models or your code that you're using, but also the data. You also have to be very, very careful with that and be very, especially be very careful keeping those data sets or those intermediate assets that you definitely need or disposing those that you don't. Because in the end, if it turns out that you're disposing an intermediate data set and it turned out that you needed it, ideally you would have the script to generate it again, right? Nice, yeah. But you're not, I don't know, storing all of that in a database or potentially using the wrong data set or the wrong version of the data set when you thought you were actually using another one. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I can see that as a real problem and definitely lead to, <laughs> in the scientific community, these kind of odd results that are not reproducible at all, like you were talking about. Yeah. I guess I have another quick question. Maybe it's not quick, but if someone was wanting to 
just get started in machine learning. Do you have any good resources? Oh, um, when I got started in machine learning, it was a very long time ago. But there are some really, really good resources like a set of O'Reilly books. I like the hands-on machine learning with like learning TensorFlow. And I think there is a, a new edition that came out uh, and it's very, very good. Cool. There is also data science from scratch, I believe. Okay. And if you want to get something like the very, very basics on how you're manipulating data or doing data processing, there are a lot of other books or even online resources like Wes McKinley has one, Chris Albion has another one. Yeah, I think Wes McKinney's book that's basically about pandas. Yeah. And because, yeah, well, he knows pandas inside out. You actually get a very good overview on on getting started with pandas. Because at the end of days, well, I, as someone uh, doing data science or machine learning, it's a tool that I use day in and day out, basically. Right. Yeah, totally. I had a couple of questions about some of the other projects that you work on. One is mentored sprints. Yeah. Uh, so this is a little fun project that I started, I think, two years ago. Cool. Just over two years ago. And it came because I I go to a lot of conferences and I often see folks that say after the main conference for the sprints. Um, but something that I started noticing was that a lot of folks that are staying over for those days are folks that have previously contributed to open source or it's also a very good opportunity for maintainers or developers, core developers of a certain package to get together and get some quality time working on, on a set library. But there are a few spaces for sometimes for folks that have never and never contributed to open source right. to get mentorship on, on how to do it. And it comes also, especially when it comes to folks from groups that have not been traditionally uh, overrepresented or groups that are actually underserved in our community, it becomes harder sometimes to find a mentor or just to find time or the justification to say to your employer, well, I'm going to PyCon for six days plus I want to say there are three other days to see if I can contribute to an open source project. Right. Dip your toes in and learn about it. Exactly. So I decided to start with mentor sprints that were actually focused on beginners, folks that have never have never contributed before to open source, probably because they've never had opportunity, they never had a chance, or because they lack the confidence to to do it. And make them part of the main conference so that they in this case, uh, I've done that in PyCon UK and PyCon US, so that folks don't have to stay after the conference for an extra few days or ask for extra few days at work or take days after their caring duties or life duties. Um, so the idea is because we already have a lot of the developers and the core maintainers of packages there, they serve as mentors for these folks. We guide them first through on how the process or the workflow to make a contribution is. Then they get direct mentorship. And at the end of the day, we celebrate whatever they did. Cool. But something else that I try to encourage is changing the mindset about what open source contributions mean. It's very easy for us to get fixated 
in the fact that code contributions are what matter. But there are a lot of different ways in which we can contribute. So one of the essential parts is answer the mentors or the folks that are bringing the project, let's say, Jupyter or Core Python or TensorFlow or Hypothesis, ask them to find issues beyond code. So identify things or ways in which folks can contribute to our documentation. Uh, if they need a new logo design for uh, for the project, if they have a new tutorial and they need folks to do dry runs on file issues. Yeah. That was the case, for example, for uh, CircuitPython that we had last year. We had some folks actually following their tutorials and, and doing things on other fruit products. Uh, and it was a very, very good experience. So it's a big win for, for everyone. The folks get mentorship. They get opportunity to contribute to open source. We've had instances in which that mentorship has gone beyond the mentor experience and they've actually carried on contributing to the project. That's awesome. The folks with the project get some nice contributions and we all seem to have had a very big, a very great time. So because of this, I was returning to Pinecon US this year, but well, that's not happening again. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I've also started running now mentor sprints as standalone events for either specific projects or added to other kind of workshops. That's great. So this year, are you doing more in an online fashion? Yes. So actually, we're going to run the mentor sprints that were meant to be run at PyCon US, and we're going to be doing it in an online fashion. It's, it's going to be a bit tricky in the sense that we normally have everyone together in the same venue. So this year, we have to, we're planning to cover different time zones. So it's going to be a full day of sprints. And then just have a specific time slots for folks from different time zones to jump in, jump out and contribute to projects, have different mentors, uh, onboarding and different organizers across different time zones. That's great. And then I saw that you are looking at starting a podcast. Do you want to talk about that? That's correct. Yeah. The cat, the cat is out of the bag now. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I think it all started. It was actually Sean Tabor from Teaching Python. Yeah. Oh, I got it right this time. Yes. Um, I think it all started because he had a tweet about how is that there is not a Pine Ladies podcast out yet. Oh, yeah. I was like, yeah, actually, why is there not a, a Pine Ladies podcast? But then I went beyond that. Why is there not a podcast that allows folks whose voices have not been traditionally amplified in our community to actually be amplified? Because I love Pine Ladies. Pine Ladies is great, but not all the folks that are underrepresented in our community identify themselves as Pine Ladies. Right. So I wanted to create a podcast that is strong inclusive, that highlights the really incredible things that all of our community members and all of our community voices are doing and really, really cover all of the different applications of Python, whether that's traditional software development, data science and machine learning, creative coding, Internet of Things, makers, all of the artistic variations, which are amazing as well, and also cover folks from all across the globe yeah try to focus on every continent because i know people all over the world making amazing things so this podcast is basically going to do that i'm planning to release in 
seasons. So I'm going to have seasons off episode, a certain number of episodes and have a break and then again, bring another episodes where I'm doing uh, basically one-to-one interviews with these folks. Nice. Yeah. I, <laughs> I could see that as a, a big advantage as I'm trying to wrangle uh putting together a weekly podcast myself the, the idea of having seasons would be kind of nice as having a uh, points where you can kind of take a break and focus on different areas and different topics and uh, groups of people but also give you the time to be able to you know focus on other things too right yeah so i i want to balance it like um at this moment i'm not traveling of course because of covid Right. But sometimes I I can be on the road quite a lot. So I I wanted to have something that I can fit in my schedule and also allow me to release something out for the community to listen, for the community to consume, and also hear the feedback from the community and reflect on that, improve the podcast for the next season, and then just build on that every time. Yeah, cool. Because I'm all about the community and I, I truly believe that the power of open source is on, on developing things for the people rather than developing someone and then just getting everyone to use it or consume it. Yeah, you know, I'm excited about that idea too. And let me know if you need help. I will do. So I have a couple other kind of quick ones. Uh, in your bio, it mentions you are a fellow at the Alan Turing Institute. That's correct. I'm a visiting fellow at the Alan Turing Institute, uh, which is the data science institute in the UK. So they do a lot of academic research, but also work with industrial partners around all things that is science. And I'm happy to be able, well, I'm I'm happy to be able to collaborate with this bunch of really, really amazing folks there. That's cool. And then a couple of your hobbies, uh, you're into weightlifting and you said something about doing Olympic stuff with weightlifting. Is that right? Uh, Yes, I am into Olympic weightlifting. I got into that a few years back. But yeah, I, I, I've been practicing it probably on and off because I got a back injury as well a few years back. But I love it. I absolutely love it. And I was planning to get into a competition again this year. So all my, all my plans, you will notice that all my plans have changed. <laughs> um, yeah, everything's shifted. <laughs> but, but I really like it because I, it's so different to what I do to my day to day work. And it also helps me to, to clear my mind and de stress from normal life and work. What country were you representing? So I live in the UK. And, but I'm originally from Mexico. Okay. In senior, in masters, I, well, in the internal UK, I can represent UK, but for any international championships, I have to go as Mexican because I still hold the Mexican passport. Okay, cool. Your other hobby I was looking at was a craft beer and uh, visiting some beer festivals, which hopefully by Oktoberfest, (laughs) we'll be looking (laughs) at the ability to do that stuff again. Yes, I I am a massive fan of craft beer. I I am fascinated by the whole craft beer scene, and I think it's a very very good place to live in, being in Manchester in the UK, because there are a lot of very good breweries. Myself and my other half uh, go to beer festivals, uh, usually during spring, summer, and then again in autumn. Uh, I think our favorite one is Dark City, Dark and Wild City, that is in the autumn. And it's all about dark beers. It's all stout and porters. Um, but the Wild City comes from the actual uh, deceased beers. So they're like bisons or sour beers. 
pretty unusual. And we try to do that also when I travel for conferences and such, I always try to find a craft beer place in the city, let's say if uh, last year I was in Portland twice and I found some really good craft beer places. That's a great place. Yeah. So I, I, I try to do that. I'm a celiac and uh, there's actually a gluten-free brewery and they also have food and they have like a dedicated uh, gluten-free restaurant. So it was, it was amazing. So I was able to do like a total flight of different beers and which was really special for me because <laughs> <laughs> I, I miss it. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so that's also something that I try to do. Um, if I'm traveling for a conference or something, I, if, if I have a, a couple of hours free, um, I try to find a craft beer place and then just go there, try some local beers. Um, sometimes I go with folks from the conference. Sometimes I go on my own and my book and yeah, I love it. Yeah. So I have a couple of weekly questions. The first one is what is something you thought you knew about Python? but turned out you were wrong about it. I thought for a very long time uh, that I understood how the girl worked. And then it turned out that I had no clue. Okay. So yeah, it's, was, that's the... Um, the Python-like interpreter, yeah. Yeah, okay. So what changed your mind about it? So actually, in I was working at the University of Sheffield a couple of years back. And there was this folk that was really like his specialization was optimizing code and doing uh, all things of crazy, wild, uh, very, very fast code. And he was actually refactoring some material science code for, into use number to make it faster. Okay. And it was like, oh, well, yeah, this is how things work. I was totally like, yeah, yeah, you can do it this way. It's like, no, you're never going to get that like a, a good spit with that. Um, he spent so many days and so many hours trying to explain, not only me, but all of us, how the guild actually worked. Um, and by the end, when he finished refactoring the code, he also did some, some benchmarking. It turns out that you can get really, really good speed, like comparable to Fortran, I'm going to say, if you know what you're doing. And he obviously knew what he's doing. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so he definitely changed my my perception about how to optimize Python code. Nice. This is kind of a general question. What are you excited about in the world of Python? It could be an event, it could be a package or an editor or a piece of hardware. What are you excited about right now in the, the world of Python? And there are a lot of things that I'm very excited about. One of the things, is, I can't remember the number of the PEP, okay. but I know that Marietta has been vouching for it. And that's moving the issue tracker of core Python, of C Python to GitHub. And I think that's something amazing because a lot of folks are familiar with GitHub. Uh, they already contributed their pull requests and all their code there. And I think it will make it more accessible and inclusive to our community. Nice. So I'm very, very excited to see. And it's going to be a, a very big task. It's going to be a lot of work. So I'm very excited to see how the C Python core people go about it cool thanks tanya so much for talking to me it's been great yeah no it, it's been a pleasure uh, being invited to your podcast all right i'll talk to you soon yeah speak later i want to thank tanya allard for being my guest this week and i want to thank you for listening to the real python podcast make sure you subscribe to the podcast in your favorite player and if you like the show leave us a five-star rating and a review 
You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.